are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Today, I am speaking with Andrew Bett-Grace, who teaches journalism and creative media at the University of Alabama. Recently, Andy, along with Chip Brantley, hosted the podcast White Lies on NPR. White Lies investigates the 1965 murder of Reverend James Reeb, a Unitarian minister and civil rights activist in Selma, Alabama. Today, we are going to talk White Lies and Lillian Smith's impact on the podcast. Thank you for joining me today, Andy. Yeah, thanks for being here. I mean, thanks for having me. It's wonderful. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. I remember, you know, White Lies came out when I was in Norway. So I would walk to the office every day across the bridge, looking at the mountains, listening to this podcast about James Reeb and the murder and the civil rights um, activism around that period and thinking back to the South where I'm from. As you know, I spent two years in Alabama and Auburn. I'm from Louisiana and then in Georgia. So it was kind of interesting to have that distance, yet still closeness with that kind of subject and topic. But we just got a few questions to talk about today. And starting off with White Lies, uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? How did you get started investigating the murder of um, James Reeb? And where did that investigation lead you and Chip? Yeah. Um, so we, Chip and I were working on a, um, uh, we were working on a class together, actually, and we were looking for this was the 2014 and 2015 school year, basically. So in the early fall of 2014, we were looking for a story to explore with a group of advanced journalism students um, and documentary film students. And because it, because the Voting Rights Act 50th anniversary was coming up in the spring of 2015, we were thinking about something maybe in Selma, something maybe related to the civil rights movement. Um, there had been, in, in 2013 in Birmingham, there had been a lot of 50th anniversary um, events related to the church bombing and to, um, you know, various, the, the Children's March and the different campaigns, uh, elements of the civil rights campaign there in Birmingham. So we thought Selma would be inundated by this stuff too, and maybe we should go down there and sort of, ne- neither one of us really knew much about Selma, not spend much time in Selma. Um, and so I reached out to a friend of mine, um, who's a, re- a reporter in Mississippi, Jerry Mitchell, who is in the podcast. And Mitchell is basically the, um, uh, he's the he is the journalist who helped to put away uh, the killer of Medgravers, Byron Dale Beckwith. Um, he also helped um, with the pro- his reporting rather helped inform the prosecution of the Bobby Frank Cherry and Tommy Blanton, two of the 16th Street Church bombers who were prosecuted by Doug Jones, now our senator, um, in the early 2000s. And so I had actually met Jerry at one of those trials when I was fresh out of college and working as a freelance journalist. Um, so I kept in touch with him, and so I called him, and I said, well, what do you know about Selma, and what, what kind of stories do you, have you not pursued over in Alabama? And he said, if I were you, I would dig into this James Reeb story, because uh, there are two very compelling things as a journalist. One, at the time, there was a living suspect, and there was a living witness um, to the crime. And the living suspect was this man, uh, Duck Hoggle, who is deceased now, but was alive at the time, and the, and the living witness was Clark Olson, who was with Reeb the night of the attack. And Jerry had gotten to know Clark Olson pretty well over the years. And Clark had given Jerry this unredacted FBI file, which Jerry had wanted to look into and had kind of done some work on, but just really hadn't had the time to do because he does most of his work in Mississippi. 
So he's like, look, I'll give you this FBI file and, uh, and see what you guys find, you know? So um, for the next few months with this class, we kind of explored a more broad story about what Selma, what had happened in Selma in the 50 years since the Voting Rights Act. And um, we went and visited with Clark Olson, um, who was living in Asheville, North Carolina at the time. Um, and we did some work around that, but Chip and I realized there was a story that was far outside the, the bounds of the class uh, that was more, it would require a different sort of sensibility. So um, we also discovered in the process of working on uh, on that that first kind of version of this project that there was a lot that, that that could still potentially be done in a legal sense because there were some witnesses that we found and, and there had been some suspects that had not really been identified. Um, so we realized there's a much bigger story to tell there. So for the next few years working on other projects, we kind of cultivated that story until finally we took a completely different story to NPR. Um, and they were interested and liked us and liked what we were doing and liked the style of the show, but they wanted to, they wanted to know more about this civil rights cold case story that we worked on a few years back. So that's kind of how the, the story came to be. We kind of then doubled down on that particular story and uh, there, the, the mandate basically was if you get, you know, a handful of these really key people on the record, people that we had cultivated for years, then NPR would, would sort of green light the show. So that's how it came to be. There's a couple of interesting things there that I think you talked that I think you mentioned. One is the pedagogical kind of genesis of the project, mm -hmm. which I think is a really interesting and important thing, getting students involved, even though it went away from having students involved with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's something that teachers think about. How do we impact students in the classroom and how we have them impact society outside of the classroom? Yeah, especially in journalism. I mean, they, to give students an opportunity to actually dig into something that's a little bit, I mean, the, the, the story that Chip and I told is a very different story than we explored with the right. class. But, but the story that we explored with the class was a, in many ways, an unconventional journalism story. It was more of a feature kind of story. It asked students to think about a deep and broad history and then try to connect that to characters that they were meeting now in the present. So I think that kind of challenge, which is basically the synthesis of sociology and history and journalism all at the same time, um, I think is a really rewarding thing as a teacher to be able to do all of that. Yeah. And the other thing that stuck out to me too is James Reeb. I hadn't heard about him or known his story or what happened yeah. to him. So it seems like these stories and some of these individuals, I mean, Lillian Smith being one of them, kind of get mixed into this whole cauldron of things and lost amidst other things. Right. I think is really disappointing in a lot of ways because their stories are important their voices are important especially somebody like Smith and Reeb and individuals who were involved at that period and others as well which we'll talk about in a second but that leads me to the second question because I found out I mean I was listening to White Lies but then did a Twitter search of course for Lillian Smith Pillars of the Dream and when I did that Twitter search I came across a thread uh, that you did about the podcast mm -hmm. in that thread you mentioned that you, Chip Brantley, uh, Connor O'Neill, who was my office mate at Auburn, and the crew read Killers of the Dream, you know, her right. book from 1949, during production. And you kind of talked about how that book, along with um, some things from Virginia Durr and others, kind of influenced the podcast. So how did reading mm -hmm. Smith's work influence your investigation and the overall project? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I, so I knew of, of Lillian Smith um, since I had, since I was an undergrad, because uh, one of my favorite professors as an undergrad, I, I went to school here at the University of Alabama before I came back and to teach here, um, was uh, Rose Gladney, who was, um, 
you know, an American studies professor. I was an American studies major. I did my graduate work in American studies um, later on. Uh, so American studies is sort of my home discipline. And, and Dr. Gladney really taught me kind of how to orient myself as a white Southerner who was maybe not politically at home in this place um, and who wanted to find a way to reconcile the things that I believed about the world with my existence as a white Southerner. And that, and that that reconciliation wasn't simply to flee the South, but was instead sort of try to navigate and, and work for change here, you know? Um, and so I, I was introduced to, to Virginia Durr and Lillian Smith as an undergrad, um, but not really, I didn't have a very deep understanding of either one of those particular, um, the, either one of those women really. And so it was later on um, during the production, I think Connor read Killers of the Dream first and it had been kind of hovering there. You know, we read a ton for this project, sort of all three of our sort of session is to get entirely too deep on the research. Um, and so it, it had been on a book list for a long time and I've been like, oh yeah, yeah, we should read that. And I had made a film about Virginia Durr and Cliff Durr um, some years ago. And in the process of making that film had, had you know, reread a bunch of stuff about Lillian Smith because Durr and Smith had a sort of peculiar relationship. Um, and so I was kind of, you know, like, oh yeah, 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 I know I'm supposed to read that at some point. And then Connor read it and started tweeting us, or not tweeting, but texting us, you know, snippets from it and sort of saying, oh dude, you gotta pick this up. So both Chip and I picked it up and read it, just devoured it um, in, a, in the course of a few weeks while we were writing the show. And it was really just an incredible, I don't know, it was a, it, it felt like, I mean, I, my copy, I just, I brought my copy today for this interview and I was looking at it. It's like, I'm not, the marginalia and the underlining is <laughs> outweighs the clean pages on, the, you know, it's like there's very few clean pages in, in this book now. Yeah, at some point um, I had to stop underlining and doing marginalia because there's so yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, so um, so it just, it kind of, it crystallized, I think for us, uh, you know, it, one of the things about being a white Southerner who is trying to understand and parse the injustices of our history and the, me and the meaning that we can pull out of those injustices um, is that sometimes you feel a little crazy because you're living in a place where people by and large don't seem to be, don't seem to be concerned with these issues, white people that is. Um, and I, I, reading her and reading a lot of Virginia Durr too, it just is like, I'm not crazy. saying this for a long time. White Southerners who are from this place for a long time who identify with, with their families, uh, maybe feeling not really a part of those families, but they didn't leave here, they stayed here. And it's a very difficult proposition to try to stay here and make things different. Um, and so it felt like a relief in a way to read that stuff. Yeah, I mean, she came, the thing that isn't necessarily shocking, but amazing, I think about her, one is she came back and stayed until she died. I mean, she right. in Northeast Georgia for that whole period. And the things that she did up there, not just killers, but even before that, I mean, if you had a chance to read some of the stuff she did with Paula Snelling and, and the journal that they did in the 30s to the mid 40s, but a lot of the stuff that's coming in Killers and Later is, is kind of presented there too. And yeah. sometimes I would say a lot more kind of pointed manner in some of those essays. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as a white Southerner as well, white Southern male from Louisiana, same thing. I mean, I think that what's important about her and, and individuals like her and Durr and and all of these others is actually holding the mirror up to ourselves, showing that we need to do that and think about ourselves and our position within the society that we've inherited in a lot right. of ways. Right, right, right. You know, yeah, and there's a great quote on my office wall by Virginia Durr that says, from, from one of her letters, that says something like, um, it's not 
it's on my home office wall, not on my office office wall, or I'd read it directly to you. But she says something like, uh, I don't think it's so odd that a healthy-minded person would not like living here. The only time I like it is when I'm trying to change it, <laughs> which I've sort of taken as my, makes me feel good about my own work here and, and my own decision to stay here, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's so much to like about here, but there's so much to right. not like. Yeah, yeah, she says, uh, there's another line from her too. And again, I know her work's much better than Lillian Smith's, but she says, uh, um, I love the climate and the people and the land and the food. And if sanity should ever return here, it would be marvelous. <laughs> See, all that all that reminds me, I taught um, Solomon Northup's 12 Years a Slave a couple of years ago uh -huh. at Auburn. And one of the things that really struck me reading his narrative, of course, it was ghostwritten, but reading that, there are multiple moments that are juxtaposed with the beauty of the landscape with the horrors that are going on. That's right. I mean, it's, yeah. And it reminds me too of, um, of McQueen's, you know, film adaptation of 12 Years mm -hmm. a Slave, which I have problems with all the Spanish moss when it's supposed to be central Louisiana, but anyways, <laughs> but the beautiful landscape shots and the, the lingering on those shots. Yeah. And then, with the brutality because one of the scenes in, in 12 years a slave actually is when he whips patsy yeah and there's this beautiful description of the birds and the sounds and everything like that and then this horrific moment of him doing that to her yeah yeah, yeah. so this juxtaposition which those quotes from Durr very much you know kind of encapsulate and smith even in some of her letters talking about looking out at screamer mountain and looking at the landscape and then these other issues sure here. yeah and that makes me think, you know, Smith, I sent you a letter that Smith wrote actually about, um, I forgot the guy's name, but the book about James Reed. Okay, Howard, yeah. And she, I guess, read an advanced copy of it. It's in Rose mm -hmm. Gladney's collection of letters. And Smith's work, or Smith, sorry, along with stick members and others, you know, criticized President Johnson's response to Reed's murder. And you talk about this in White Lies. Mm -hmm. um, in comparison with his response to the murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson, um, who was murdered by police in Marion, Alabama. And that murder, of course, prompted the Selma to Montgomery March. You talk about this in White Lies, and can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? And a little bit about kind of that, um, the responses to Johnson's comments. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the backstory for how and why the movement landed in Selma is very, very complicated. But um, as part of that, and it was largely because uh, some forces aligned that made the, the entire county um, political system so thoroughly in favor of segregation that they were willing to do really crazy and illegal things to prevent black folks from registering. So that had drawn the attention of, of, uh, of Dr. King on the SCLC. And so they had come in in early January, um, you know, local civil rights organizations have been there for a long time, but when they did and SNCC came in too, they started migrating over into these other areas, Marion, which is near Selma, was one of those places. Marion was smaller and more quiet, and, and they had sort of a different tactic. They um, James Orange was actually arrested at the time um, that that uh, that Jimmy Lee Jackson was murdered, um, and so there was a night march to the prison, basically. Um, and the sheriff from Selma was was there, even though he it's not his jurisdiction. And he came over because he said that everything was too quiet in Selma that night. Um, but but during this night march, what had happened is that. Uh, Basically, the, the cops just sort of shot the lights out and began beating these people. They're really, I mean, notwithstanding Jimmy Lee Jackson's murder on this night, it would still be remembered as a pretty signature kind of moment of violence in, in that part of the civil rights movement. Um, but Jimmy Lee Jackson got pushed into this, this diner, this cafe. 
he was protecting his grandfather and his mother and a state trooper shot him in the stomach um, twice. He died a couple weeks later. And it was his death that, again, most of the civil rights sort of national organizers were located in Selma. And the Selma and Marion movements were, you know, they had a lot of the same actors. So folks in Selma were saying, we've got to do something about this particular murder. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a sort of apocryphal story that a lot of people tell from the movement that James Bevel wanted to take Jimmy Lee Jackson's body to, uh, to Montgomery. And that uh, he began to say, you know, we, we, he was quoting some line in the Bible saying, we need to go see the king. Like, we have to see the king. And so that was really the genesis of the, of the march, which became Bloody Sunday. It was this idea of going to Wallace to protest this one particular instance of, of violence that was, that was too much. Now, now, now the police are going to be killing people because they're trying to register. Like, what? This, is, this has gone too far. Um, but that march is not remembered for its origin. It's remembered instead for what happened on the bridge when they, when they crossed over and the beating that happened there, which is, of course, what drew, Jimmy, or what, what drew Jim Reeb. So I think that, you know, when, when Reeb was killed in Selma um, before the ultimately successful Selma to Montgomery march, the eyes of the world were already on Selma at that point. Bloody Sunday had been the lead story on all the networks that Sunday night. I mean, it's kind of remarkable to think about in 65, the footage from the bridge got to New York so quickly to be on the television that night. Um, <clears throat> but basically, that the visibility and, and all these camera people and all these news people being in Selma already made that re the Reeb story percolate in a way that uh, the Jimmy Lee Jackson's death had not. I mean, that's to say nothing of the fact that there was a white minister who was killed versus a black, basically, deacon and log cutter from, you know, rural black man from Marion, Alabama. But so there were, there were a couple of different forces, but it wasn't, it, it's, it's gotten, at the time, a lot of people within the movement were appalled at the way that Johnson latched on to uh, Reeb's death as opposed to Jimmy Lee Jackson's death. But they also, a lot of people in the movement at the time and even now, think that, well, that kind of tactical decision made a lot of sense. Anything you can do to get this, to get this awareness, let's, let's deal with the consequences of whose life matters more later, but right now we need to get the Voting Rights Act, you know? Um, and we actually talked to somebody in the show, this is in the show, because we do an entire episode about Jimmy Lee Jackson, because of course we're very conscious as white Southerners of, of telling the story of, of this white minister, you know, why is that the story in the, in the wake of all this racial violence? It's one of the things that we were really, we, we never, I don't think we ever thought that we were doing something um, that we shouldn't be doing by telling this particular story because we had really good reasons to tell this story. But I think we were very aware of what the optics of it were. And so I think we prepared a lot to encounter what we, what we thought would be a lot of hostility about that choice to tell the story of a white man. And so in the, in the process, we've been kind of pleased that it hasn't been, the show has not really been received that much that way, but we have, we have talked a lot about it in interviews just to help folks who might be curious about it. We talked about it in the show, but it's not like, you can't do a lot of like liberal guilt, hand wringing, you know, back padding, whatever. Um, in a show like this, it's just not the place for it. So, I mean, that the way that we've come to think of it is that if it had been a black person who'd been killed that we had the unredacted FBI file for, I'm not sure that we would have felt like it was our role to tell that story. But because Jim Reed was white, because his murder was unsolved, and because as the show explores, the reason it remained unsolved and the reason why maybe it, well, maybe one of the contributing reasons why nobody even knew about Reed's murder kind of broadly after a number of years is because of this counter narrative that existed that exonerated the white community from any responsibility that all of those things were white stories <laughs> and they were about the white community they were about white people most of the characters in the show are white folks and that white people need to talk about 
this. We had a black woman come up to us. I'm off the axis of your question, but I'll get back to it. We had a black woman come talk to us after a live event in DC and she's loved the show. And she said, um, you know, I realized pretty early on that it wasn't really a show for me. <laughs> and she was like, I don't know what I mean that in a bad way. What I mean is that it was like, I was eavesdropping on conversations that white people need to have about this stuff. And it was kind of a, she had, she found it very uh, enjoyable for that reason, you know, which is a very different reason than a white audience might remember. Which, enjoy, is, which know? is kind of like, which is what Smith's doing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Those are the dream. She's writing, she's writing about segregation. She's writing about the effects of segregation, Jim Crow on whites and blacks, but she's, like I said, holding the mirror up to whites themselves and to right. herself. I think she's pretty honest with herself throughout that she's doing this with herself or she has been doing this with herself. It's a process that she's gone through as well. Right. I mean, Not one of the strongest moments in Killers of the Dream, it's still, I mean, we, we talk about it all the time. We, Chip and I were at NPR last week doing some training sessions for young journalists and um, we talked about it there. I mean, is that the way this anecdote she tells about the, when she's at the, at the camp, yeah. um, talking to the young woman and she's laid, she's laid out this entire worldview basically. And the young woman is resistant in many ways, but ultimately is sort of coming around. And then at the, at the end of the exchange, she's just angry at Lillian Smith because what Smith has done is made it almost impossible for her to want to do right without being able to also love her family at the same time. She says it would be so much easier right. for me, for me to do right if I hated my family and I didn't care about where I came from. Right. And that, I mean, that's something that white people need to understand and know how to talk about. That's our problem. We, we have to figure that stuff out, you know? Um, I think, you know, one of the sort of really poor assumptions that a lot of people make, a lot of white people make in this country is that, that racial stories are about black people, that, that, you know, Black History Month is about black events. Well, no, not at all. I mean, these are, these are this is the history of America and our understanding of the history of black people and, and, black people's history is for us to understand the ways in which white people have infringed on their rights, infringed on their freedom, have created the structures in the worlds that, that the black life exists in, that these are not just the over there. They're fundamentally tied to us, you know? Yeah. So the last question I have, of course, what do you want people to take away from Smith's work? I think we pretty much answered that a lot, yeah. but if, if there's one or two things that you kind of want people to take away, um, any I mean, reader, anybody, what would you want that to be? Yeah, I mean, I well, first of all, we've gotten a lot of emails and letters from people, from white Southerners who've reached out to us after the show came out. Um, and they say, you know, thank you for this. I mean, there's a broad spectrum, but the, main, yeah. the ones I'm talking about are the sort of thank you for this and thank you for kind of giving the space for me to think about something that's been kind of gnawing at me. And without fail, every single one of those people, we write back and say, please order Lillian Smith's Killers of the Dream. Because it, 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 it's, it gives someone who is, a white person who is, and I, want to, I mean, I want to give it to my parents because I think they would be responsive to it. You know, like a white person who wants to understand, even though it was written so long ago, it still feels so contemporary in many ways about the ways in which, what, which is kind of what the show does and greatly influenced by Smith, I think, which is that we don't, we choose not to talk about an uncomfortable and painful past. And we choose not to process the meaning of that past because denial and, and absolution from our, from our guilt has always been our strategy. But we are still a region perpetually affected by injustice and poverty and, and hatred and meanness as much as there might be so much beauty and, and personal kindness in this place. And as long as we continue to say, we just ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, and maybe it'll go away, I think we're going to find ourselves always on, on the getting the short end of the stick, you know, and it, 
it, that there, why not try now to talk? Why not try now to think, to process what happened in the past and what our, what our responsibility to that painful past is, you know? So I think if anything, what we hope that the show gives people and what we think we got from Lillian Smith is stop avoiding these discussions and maybe try instead to do a new strategy, talk about it, try to reconcile what it means, as that young woman said, to want to do right, but then she has to hate her family. Well, then what, what, are, what are your options? How does that work, you know? Have a conversation like you have in White Lies or, or right. how to be in a racist. Right, exactly. Anything like that. So, yes, thank you for spending time with us today. No, and it was really nice. Yeah, thank you. I'm so, really happy with the work y'all are doing and keeping Lillian Smith's legacy. Thank you. Go check out White Lies if you haven't already. And like Andy said, go order Killers of the Dream. All right. Thanks so thank much. You. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.